You're listening to the weekly podcast from Solid Ground Church. We hope that this is uplifting and encourages you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. If we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now let's get to this week's message. How are you doing today, Solid Ground? We doing all right? <laughs> it's, it's a weird place to be in life with a half-hearted woo. Are you here the woo? <laughs> Uh, that, that's a guilt woo is what that was. That was, all right, I better say something because he asked. Uh, woo? Uh, all right, welcome. Good morning. Listen, if we haven't met, uh, my name's Bert. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much uh, for getting up, spending your Sunday with us. And man, you have picked a fun week because we are in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation. So do me a favor. If you have a Bible right now, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Now let me set this up a little bit. Um, Last week, all that we did was we just took time to understand the historical context and literary context for the book of Revelation. Because Revelation, while amazing and, and you know, being the story of a new heaven and a new earth and the victory of God, Revelation is one of those books that if it's understood you know, improperly, it's the stuff cults are made of. Like, I mean, like, you can walk away from Revelation. If you don't quite get the book, you might sort of conclude doom and gloom. I need to put on a tinfoil hat and live in the desert because the world is terrible and scary. And that's a misreading of Revelation. And so we said, like, as we begin to set this book up and understand why John wrote it and what the Lord was speaking through John to the different churches in Revelation, there was a big idea that we wanted to keep at the forefront as we spend this time in the book. Um, and you might go, well, how long are we going to be in it? I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe, I, think, I think we'll be done by Christmas. I'm pretty sure, but I can't promise. So wouldn't that be a weird Christmas Eve service, by the way? All right, look. Anyway, so look. Anyway, um, here's the main idea of Revelation. If you're taking notes, write it down. Revelation teaches us that God is still in control, and to hold on even when it feels like he's not. That's Revelation in a nutshell. When we get to the victory of God, when we get to you know, Christ's triumphant and the return of Jesus, okay, it's written to a group of people who are undergoing immense persecution and suffering, and they're like, where is God in all of, all of this? And Revelation, like Jesus speaks to John, and he goes, look, it's all in my hand. And so he lets them sort of see the sum of human history, and, 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 hold on when you feel like he's not in control. So, all of that said, today we're going to look at, at uh, the letter uh, that, that Jesus speaks through John to the church in Ephesus. Now, Revelation begins with, with the sort of discourses to seven churches. And here's what you need to know like, about the church in Ephesus if we're going to understand uh, what Jesus is saying properly. So you can read about this in Acts chapters uh, 18 through 20. But here's uh, the ancient church in Ephesus in the first century as, as Revelation uh, understands it and, and sets it up. So in, in Ephesus, ancient Ephesus, um, something to know about them was that they were a place, sort of a, a hub of the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. Uh, they loved them some Artemis in ancient Ephesus. And, and, on top of that, and on top of that, it was a hub of paganism, particularly when it came to the, the construction of pagan objects of, of power, worship, these types of things, and idols. Like, it was a big industry in Ephesus. Like, the, the, the Ephesians, they, they, their system of commerce, the way they made their money, the people they employed, it really came down to making idols. In the same way, there are some places, like, like they, they make their money, and, and, the, and the economy of the city is you know, organized around, like, uh, making cars or other places making, uh, I don't know, baby bottles or what have you. But like, like in Ephesus, it's centered around the production of 
idols. And so here's the crazy thing that happened. When the gospel comes forward, when God brings the, the movement of the gospel into Ephesus, and we find this in Acts 19, okay, like revival breaks out, all these people, just tons and tons of people turn to the Lord. They turn away from pagan gods. They turn away from rebellion. They decide they're going to follow Jesus to the, like the extent that it actually disrupts the city's economy. Like, there is such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in ancient Ephesus that people actually, like, listen, I can't follow Jesus and continue with this anymore. They, they quit their jobs. They're not buying idols. And it just, it creates this uproar in the city because people aren't, like, they're not supporting Ephesus in the way that people typically have in ages past. It actually upsets the city. I mean, what a crazy movement of God. And so there's this riot that breaks out, and then people declare, like, we're going to follow Artemis. And, like, I mean, they drag a person into a court. I mean, like, it's crazy. It's just, like, this absolute riot it takes place and then it kind of calms down and, and Paul leads the Ephesian church through a season and along about Acts 20 he gathers the Ephesian church leaders together and he says listen you know, the Lord's calling me somewhere else but just know and gives them a prophetic word just know that after I leave wolves are going to come in and they're going to be savage to this flock of people on top of that on top of that they're going to be people who arise from your own ranks who lead people astray so brace yourselves because it's coming. And then Paul leaves. And you know what? Between then and when revelation happens, that happens. Like that exact thing. Like there, there's an immense persecution of, of the Ephesian believers. Like people are killed. They lose their houses. They lose relationships. They lose their jobs. I mean, like it's, it's bad to be a Christian in Ephesus. And while that's going on, there are still these people who arise in the Ephesian church who say they love Jesus, but are teaching all kinds of really, really bad things. That's the context for Revelation chapter 2. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about what's going on in the Ephesian church. And so in, a, in Revelation 2, starting in verse 1, here's what Jesus says to John. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's pause there for a moment. Back to our earlier theme, God is still in control. Hold on even when it feels like he isn't. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. So the seven stars, what they represent are either the angels or messengers of the, the church in Ephesus. Here, here's, here's or, or, well, each one per church, okay? So in Greek, the word that we translate as angel, it's the word angelos. It can also mean messenger, like somebody who carries a message somewhere, which is why when we talk about like heavenly bodies, we use this term angel, like they're carrying the message of God. But it could also be an earthly one. That could go either way. Regardless, you've got these seven stars, and they represent the message or the, the testimony, the witness of the church. Jesus holds that in his hand. But at the same time, you've got these seven golden lampstands, and each lampstand represents a church. You, you may remember if you've read the Gospels where Jesus says, you are the light of the world, right? Like he speaks that to believers, okay? Why? Because like as God like lifts up your message, people will see that, just like a, like a lampstand would lift up a light. The same way that's what a church is when it, when it comes to the sort of allegory. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Okay, number one, like he holds the seven like stars in his hands. I mean, it's all within his control. They're all still aware of what God is doing. He has not failed them. His hand is upon them. They are right where they should be in the midst of persecution, hardship, and suffering. But at the same time, he is the one who walks among them. I mean, he's, he's in their midst, and not only is he aware of, of what they're going through, he's also aware of what they're doing. Let's just, let's just check that, by the way. Okay, how many of you are aware that this morning, yes, God is everywhere, but he's here, right? Okay, like him who walks among the lands, like right now, Jesus is in this room. He says in his word, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. The reason some of you, you know, like you come in and you're just aware, I'm in the presence of God. It's not because our band is so good, although they are. It's because Jesus is here. 
he, he's the one whose presence you sense. Okay, why? Because he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so, so that said, being, him being aware and evaluating their actions, what does he do? Well, here's what he says in verse 2, okay? I know your deeds. I see what you're doing. I like good and bad. I know what is going on in your life, your hard work and your perseverance, okay? Guys, like the people around you have not made it easy to be a Christ follower and you have held on. Like you've done your due diligence. You're working hard to further the kingdom and I want you to know that I see that. And I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, okay? So you've got people who are coming in who are trying to lead others away from God and you don't put up with it. You call a spade a spade. You call out and I just want you to know that I see that. On top of that, he says that you have tested those those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them to be false. And let's pause there. He goes, listen, there have been people who have come in among you and when they've tried to lead people, you go, let's just test this for a moment. Let's just step back and evaluate if what they're saying is in alignment with what we know the scriptures to say, that they've tested them. Now, I want to just pause on this for a moment because unfortunately, what happens sometimes within religious movements is, is a culture develops where leaders arise and they can't be questioned. Right? And it's considered as sort of less than spiritual or less than faithful. Like, okay, if I, if I take a moment to stop and evaluate if you're following the Lord, I'm somehow not faithful to you or to the body. But let's understand something. The Bible would completely contradict that. In addition to here where Jesus goes, I want you to know that I see you testing people who are fake. I see that. That's great. You find elsewhere where it says, listen, test the spirits to see if they're of God. You could read in the book of Acts about where Paul brings the gospel to a group called the Bereans and says, like, them being godly decide to search the scriptures to make sure that what Paul was saying was true. It is not, not, not unspiritual to hold leaders accountable. It is not, not, not unspiritual or faithless for you to step back and go, I just want to make sure that what you're saying and what you're doing are in alignment with what the scriptures say. Because, and I love this, an author named John Acuff says it like this. He says, leaders who can't be questioned end up doing questionable things. It's good, right? Leaders who can't be questioned end up doing questionable things. When you remove accountability, when you remove the dialogue and, and the sort of discernment and, and all of that that's involved in making sure that it's in alignment with the scriptures, what you set yourself up for is a person who will assume the role of God. And because, because you can't question them, you can't call them out, and that itself is wrong. So Jesus goes, listen, I want you to know, I see that you tested these guys who said that they were apostles, they weren't spot on. He continues, listen, you have persevered and have endured many hardships for my name, and have not grown, grown weary. Okay, you've held on, it's been rough, but you've, you've endured, and guys, I see it, that's amazing. And wouldn't it be great if the letter stopped there? But it doesn't. And this next part we have to understand, um, Jesus loves us enough to be honest with us when we are going off course. And so, yeah, you've got these great things within the Ephesian church, but there's a big, glaring flaw in the way that they're operating that he is about to lovingly, and it is from 100% love for them, confront them on because it cannot remain. And so he says this in verse 4, okay? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forsaken the love you had at first. It used to be when you came to Christ, you guys came out of paganism, and, and, and you were so aware 
of what you had been forgiven of. The gospel had transformed your heart. You knew that you did not deserve your standing with God, but that Jesus had died for your sin and rose from the dead to give you new life, that you didn't earn it, but he did it for you. And that love, that sense of forgiveness and mercy flowed out to other people because, because you, you're so aware you were loved by God that you couldn't help but love other people like, because you knew where you were, your heart was for others who, who are where you were. But you've lost that. So what's happened? Okay, L- Let's understand something. Um, there are a group of people who have been torn time and time again. There are a group of people who have been slandered, who have been, who have been hurt, who have been you know, persecuted, who, who have lost all this stuff. And just within the flow of life, the simple truth is this. It is very easy when faced with hatred to return it with hatred. Right? Like, it's easy to look like when someone hates you, when someone treats you poorly, it's easy just to throw that right back at them. And that's exactly what's going on with the Ephesians. Okay, so, okay, listen, like, you're, you're not with me, you're my enemy. Okay, like, you, you don't like me, you've been mean to me, well, I'm going to be mean right back. And they can do it because they can justify it. They can say, oh, listen, they may be treating me this way, but I'm the one with the truth. So it doesn't matter how I feel about you, it doesn't matter how I treat you, I've got the real thing. So therefore, like, okay, their hearts begin to grow cold because they've been burned. But we have to understand something, okay? Loving Christ and being faithful to Christ is not just believing all the right things. It's loving your neighbor. Let me say this way. So the, the Gospel of John, when, when John gets like his prologue in the beginning of the Gospel of John, he, he makes this statement about Jesus in John 1.17. He says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Like, when we're looking at the actions of Jesus, when we're seeing what he brought to the world, John says he brought two things, grace and truth. He brought truth in the sense, okay, listen, there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as sin. There is such a thing as evil. And Jesus called a spade a spade. But there's also such a thing as grace, meaning God sees what you've done. And if you repent, if you turn to him, he will not hold it against you. He will wipe away your past. Grace and truth. Now, here's the interesting thing. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Typically, when we get it wrong, it's usually because we're lacking one of these two things. So, all right. So, for instance, maybe, maybe you'll, you've come from a church culture where this was the case, okay? They, the place they placed their identity, where they placed their pride in was truth, okay? And so they would say, that, okay, listen, like, they placed their hope and their pride in their morality, right? Okay, like, Christians don't do this. We don't do this. Look how good we are. On top of that, there are people who doubt the Bible. We don't doubt the Bible. Look how good we are. And their truth became their identity, but it was also not a safe place to fall, right? Because there was no grace. And so you would find people who, who, they had a church face. They had a certain identity at church, but who they actually were never came out because they knew if anyone knew them, there would be no grace to reinstate them because of repentance. That didn't happen, okay? So you, you found this place. Some of you are not your because you've been there, okay? Like, like, there's all this truth, but when it comes to failure, there's no grace. And it's a farce. And okay, what, what's happening? One, but not the other. But here's the opposite end of it, okay? And then again, you, you might find within the certain legalistic traditions and that type of deal. On the opposite end, grace without truth. You find it manifest this way, okay? Like a group who would basically say, listen, like, man, you were just so loved by God, what you do doesn't matter. Right? Like, you're just so forgiven, right? And so, and so it's all, it's like God accepts, God accepts, God accepts, God loves, God loves, God loves. And yes, he does love, no question, but to the point where they gloss over any kind of talk of repentance. And there's an excusal of sin. There's a, 
there's a sort of arrogance that goes, right, well, maybe those, the scriptures that, that don't align with our, our current culture aren't inspired or we're reading them wrong or, or, or what have you. Like, what is it? Because it's all about grace. Or, or you'll find it this way, okay? Um, within our generation, um, and I'm not saying it's bad every time, but, but it, it has been the case in the past, there's been what's called a seeker-sensitive movement, all right? And the seeker-sensitive movement goes something like this. All right, listen, keep it really, really light on Sunday. Like, you can talk with them about, about like, sin, repentance, life change later on. But keep it like all about like whatever like somebody needs wants to hear right now. Okay, so like make it all about sort of practical. Like here's seven tips for for you know Jesus's views on your time management skills or, or what have you, right? But but okay, it's all about grace, 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 grace. But there's no truth. There's no confrontation. It's half truth, which in fact makes it lie. Right? Like let me say this way. So parents, if you had if you had a uh, you know your kid came home, your teenager came home, um, and on Friday night you say, hey, where have you been? They said, well, I've been at my friend's house. And then you come to find out, well, yes, they were at their friend's house for about 10 minutes and then went somewhere else that you've told them not to go. Would you say they were telling you the truth if they omitted a big part of it? No. No, not at all. Okay, but in the same way, like when, when we omit parts of Scripture that we don't like because they don't gel and make people feel good all the time, what we are doing is we're lying to the culture around us. But what is that? That's grace without truth. Okay, God loves, God loves, but there's no, there's no, hey, listen, I love you and I'm concerned about you with this. Okay, and here's where the Ephesian church is. Okay, they're all about truth with no grace. All right, like we do this, we do this, we do this. And, here, and you might go, okay, well, how does that play out? Um, because I can see it, like if a group is being persecuted, but I mean, for goodness sakes, like we, we live in the land of the free. I, I can't imagine that Christians would ever sort of develop a contempt for those around them. To which I would say, have you heard of YouTube? Um, because you would be amazed. Kind of, here's what happens: we are moving into a place culturally where traditional, sort of orthodox biblical Christianity is being labeled with 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 two particular uh, damaging labels. And here's what they usually hear like this: uh, if you so if you say I believe the Bible or or you know I, I hold a traditional view of marriage, sexuality, what have you, okay, you're labeled as a bigot or judgmental. Right? Like those are kind of like the two things, right? Okay. And, and what happens in our ranks is when we hear those things, well, nobody wants to be called those things. And so what do we do? Well, we respond with anger. And we start understanding, okay, listen, the person who doesn't know Christ is going to think all manner of things about us that are fake and not true because we have a real spiritual enemy, but it's not them. Right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against authorities, against rulers in the heavenly realms. Remember this whole series we just did called Make War? Right? Yeah, we have a real enemy, but it's not a human being. It's Satan. And he is allowed to influence those who don't know Christ. So, of course, they're going to be throwing things at us that are not true. And so what happens within our ranks is we start to get uppity. And we decide, listen, like we've got to maintain a certain amount of power. We've got to maintain a certain kind of image. And so, so Christians begin to, to get really offended, and we return evil for evil. We return hate for hate. Okay, so you, so you, um, like you said this about me, but let me tell you about you. And so back to YouTube, watch, just watch some, of the, watch some of the ways that we dialogue now with those with whom we disagree. Like watch just some of the, like the video titles. With, when we look at people... Who, who like, okay, like, you've got a difference of opinion than me. Look at how we, how we celebrate these things. So, for instance, like, here's some actual YouTube videos that are out there right now. Okay, look, here's one. Entitled Snowflake Gets Owned. 
right? Here's another one. Okay, but, but across, uh, across the board, okay, another study confirms conservative or just low information racists. Okay, here's another one, okay? Stuttering atheist, fairy tale creator, humiliated by another guy in debate. Here's another one, like, okay, destroys liberal sensitivity. And these are the words that we see come up when, when we have these differences in points of view. It's not, okay, you're far from God or you're close. Like, it, it's, no, you're my enemy. So you find these words, like, shuts down, humiliated, owned, destroyed. This is how we talk about disagreement and, and discussion and debate. And let me just help, okay? Listen, if you enjoy someone being humiliated, you're not loving. Do you know that? Like, if, if there's a sense of pride within you, like, yeah, get them, mm, yeah, humiliated. <laughs> They're dumb, I'm smart, yeah, get them, right? You're not loving that person with whom you disagree. Because you're enjoying their shame. And there is a way to disagree without robbing someone of their God-given humanity. Because they are made in the image of God just as much as you are. And here's where the Ephesian church is, okay? That they have become so consumed in their identity of truth that they are not loving those around them because rather than them, or seeing them as people to be reached, they are seeing them as objects to overcome. And so listen, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down and just understand something. Just as a gut check. Understand something to me, okay? Listen, a cold heart happens when we replace people with causes. Simple. A cold heart happens when we replace people with causes. Well, they're, they're nothing but a liberal. Well, they're nothing but a conservative. Well, they're nothing but a, an atheist. Well, they're nothing but a, a snowflake. Well, they're nothing but a racist. Like, like, okay, when we sort of insert those things, like, uh, incorrectly, by the way, on those with whom we disagree, what happens is we feel less for them. We feel less compassion for them. We feel less hope for them. We feel like we can minister to them less because we look at them and we go, like, you're nothing but a blank. And if you've got a title for someone, what that does is it robs any area where who they are might disagree with what you're saying. And so you don't have to show compassion. You don't have to show mercy. You don't have to show kindness to them because, because what you do is you just reduce the humanity. Okay? A cold heart happens when we replace people with cause. Let me say it like this, okay? So um, when our church got started 10 years ago, we started as a, just a few people in, in KMI's apartment. Um, and... Uh, and where we wanted to go for the first two years of our church, like where we wanted to launch our church, we wanted to go to Dewey Beach. That's where we wanted to put a church, all right? Like, and, and, I mean, and we recognized, looking back on now, the Holy Spirit was stopping us from going over there. They had something else in mind, and we celebrate that. But for the first two years, like, like there's no churches in Dewey. On top of that, Dewey, if you live here, you know, Dewey is a symbol of a certain kind of culture, a partying culture, drunkenness, debauchery, all kinds of things. And so we said, wouldn't, man, we love these people. Wouldn't it be great if we brought the gospel there? And so we just worked and worked and worked, and we just could not get any headway. But here's one of the funny things, in case you're curious, one of the funny things that happens when you plant a church is this. You, you tend to attract every now and then people who aren't necessarily interested in what you're doing. They just hate what someone else is doing. And so you get people who come in with all kinds of attitudes, who, who are angry, uh, but think that, like, maybe this is the place that's going to set it right. And so we had a couple come in one night, and they said, listen, you, like, you, you want to go to Dewey? We live in Dewey. We would love it. If you planted a church in Dewey, really? Yeah. Man, tell me about your heart for Dewey. Like, what is it that you want to see God do in Dewey Beach? And so, well, listen, we really want to see the noise level come down. 
because it's so loud on Saturday nights. These people are keeping us awake with their rock and roll music and their alcohol, right? And they just, and they're, and they're, and, and it just begins to sort of lay into how do like the problem with Dewey is that people are too loud. So they wanted a church to come in there to clean it up. Cause. Let me contrast that. I have had on more than one occasion a conversation with a grandmama whose granddaughter is in Dewey on Friday night, who's engaging in all the stuff that's going on over there, and I watch as grandma sobs. And she's like, if she could just know, like she doesn't know what she's doing to herself. She doesn't understand what God has for her. And she's it's like her heart breaks. People. Of the two, let's have the heart of the grandmama, not the angry couple at my apartment. Let's not lose people for causes. Okay. And, 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 and you might go, okay, that's great. And you know what, Bert? Yeah, I think Christians need to be more loving, which is, I can think of a few Christians who aren't loving, so I'm going to share this message with them when, when, I, when I get home. Let's turn the lens on us for a second. I think most of us believe that we are inherently good <laughs> and, that, and, that we're the, and that we're doing it right. So what if we actually let the scriptures shine a light on our hearts and see if we're actually loving? Like the way that the Bible would define it. Many of us, of course I'm loving. I feel good about some people sometimes. Okay. Well, look, let's let the word shine a light on our heart and see if we actually are. Here's, like, I'm going to read a, a passage that's typically read at weddings. Um, and that's fine. Unfortunately, it's just the, the passage isn't about romantic love. The word that we translated in love in this passage and here is agape. Um, and it means like a self-sacrificial like, love for everybody. And here's, what, here's how the Bible defines the love that all of us are supposed to have for everybody. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says this. Love is patient. Literally in the Greek, that word is, is long-suffering. Love puts up for a long time. Love is kind. Love treats other people well. When you disagree with someone, and you will, will they leave the conversation with you knowing that you value them? Love is kind. It, it does not envy. It does not boast. Huh. Look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. Look at you. You sinner. That's boast. No, 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 none of that nonsense. It is not proud. He continues, it does not dishonor others. Liberal snowflake, fairy tale atheist, none of that's there. None of that's there. It is not self-seeking. How about this one for just a moment here? Um, I am amazed at the way many of us require love but are not willing to give it. Give an example. Okay, um, let me say this. Um, if people have to consistently prove to you that they love you, you're not loving. Like I knew a guy years ago, years ago, uh, who, who, okay, like when we would have conversations, well, if they were my friend, they would do this. And he wasn't in middle school. He was an adult. Okay? Like, okay, like, well, if, well, if, if they loved me, they would do this. Okay, what is, that's an entitlement. That's a, the world owes me something. So let's just check something. God hasn't called the world to owe you anything. God has called you to love the world. Okay? Like, love is not self-seeking. It doesn't demand anything from anybody. 
Because it's not about you giving something. It's about me giving to you. Listen, it's not easily angered. Love does not have a short fuse. It's not looking for you to do something wrong so it can explode on you. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not have a file somewhere that they can pull out and go, listen, in 1973, you cut me off in traffic, and then I saw you, and you didn't say sorry, and I knew about it. There is a forgiveness that goes hand in hand with love because you recognize what God has forgiven you of. How could you not forgive your neighbor? No, it, it keeps no record of wrong. How about this one? So that we don't think that love just means giving everything a pass. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. When we talk about, you know, grace and truth, as somebody goes like, listen, man, I need to turn from me and turn to God, turn from this, turn to him. Okay, like just something just with joy just explodes in a heart that's been filled with the love of God. Yes, I'm so happy for you. Yeah. How about this? Love, it always protects Love is always looking out for someone else. Always trust. And this doesn't mean blindly trust. Um, it's the idea of assuming the best about someone. Okay, Johnny was late to the meeting at work. I don't assume, okay, it's because he's lazy or doesn't care about the job as much as I do. No, like love believes the best about someone. That's what it means by trust, okay? Always hopes. Always perseveres, okay? And lastly, he just wraps it up. Love, it says, never fails. Meaning there's never a point where we can go, I've loved enough so I can stop now. No, no, love never fails. And so here's Jesus, okay? And he's speaking all this. And, and I want to just take a moment here because we need to understand the gravity of it. Unfortunately, for many of us, we think, okay, if I know more things, that's the same as being super spiritual. But look at the language Jesus now uses about, okay, listen, you've, you've forsaken the love you had at first. Look at the religious words that he uses to religious people, okay? So people are like, listen, you need, like, you, you need to not fall. You need to repent of this, okay? Look at the words that he uses to them now in verse five. He says this. He says, um, he says consider how far you've fallen. You're not loving. You've fallen. Okay, listen, he continues. Okay, repent. What a religious word. Repent of not loving, okay? And do the things you did at first. If you do not, and there's our word again, repent, okay? Turn or burn, baby. All right, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, to Jesus, okay? He is saying, listen, if you don't start to love again, I'll end your church. Now, how big a deal does something have to be to Jesus for him to threaten that? Kind of a big deal. But there it is. That's how important this is for you and for me. And I know many of us hear this message, and because we don't have the proper view of love, we are rallying right now. If we're gracers but not truthers, we love this part of the message. Right? And so I'm up here, and I'm saying this, and internally some of you are just like, yeah, get them. Tell those Christians to love. Oh, yeah. I'm waiting for somebody to say it. To which we need to pay attention to the last thing that Jesus, who knows the heart, says. Like, it'd be easy to hear this and just go off the deep end in grace without truth. So listen to the last thing that he says to the Ephesian church. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now let's understand that. 
Who are the Nicolaitans? And why would Jesus say, I hate what they do? Because that's a big, like, for Jesus to say, that's a big deal, right? Okay, so here's, here's who the Nicolaitans were. Um, they got their name from a first century convert in Antioch whose name was Nicholas. Neat. Okay, uh, their actions are told to us largely by the church father Irenaeus. And here's what Irenaeus told us about the, the, the uh, Nicolaitans. Basically, they were people, he says, who classified themselves by living in unrestrained indulgence. In other words, what, what the Nicolaitans were known for was this. Okay, like, listen, okay, you, you would come to the grace and cross of Christ that Jesus freely forgives, freely loves, freely wipes your sin, your guilt away, and they would go, man, you are just so loved by God. You can do whatever you want. Listen, okay, like, Jesus just loves you, so go ahead and sin because he's just going to forgive you anyway. You're nothing but a sinner, and so it's okay because you've got such a great Savior. Listen, you go ahead and just sleep with whoever you want because you're going to lose your body, so go ahead. It doesn't matter. You're that forgiven by God. Oh, you are so loved by Jesus, baby. Then listen, okay, you can just drink whatever you want, smoke whatever you want, say whatever you want, because God cares that much about you, and his grace is so good. Listen, you can go ahead and be greedy. Just take all that money for you. Give nothing to the poor. It's okay because Jesus loves you and forgives you. You want to be a glutton? Go ahead. Jesus loves you. And Jesus goes, I hate that. I hate that. You know why? Because if your sin is such a big deal to God that the only way he could get rid of it was to shed his own blood on a cross, that should give you pause when it comes to sin. If Jesus came into the world to free you and me from our sin, we should really pay attention when we decide we want to follow it instead of him. And so he goes, I hate, the, I hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. And you go, fun word. Here's how it plays out in American uh, Christianity and spirituality right now. Because believe it or not, it's actually really, really rampant in our culture. We, we, we live in a place where everyone and their dog seems to be a Christian, although a life submitted to Christ is, is another thing. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, right now, there's a popular show on TV uh, called The Bachelorette. Don't raise your hand if you watch it. Because I want to keep loving you. <laughs> it's fine, man. I'm not one of those guys who's like, TV's a sin. No, I, I like TV too. But look. <laughs> the bachelorette this year is a girl named Hannah B. Hannah is herself, uh, she identifies as a Christian, says, you know, I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. And this season she's coming to a lot of conflict with a guy named Luke P., can't make this up. One of the sources of her, some of you are laughing because you know, okay, I'm not looking at this half of the room. So look, um, the conflict kind of reached ahead at one point when, when Hannah and Luke sat down and Luke confronted her on some things. And he said, listen, all right, look, like you say, you're a Christian. Look, here's Hebrews 13 where it says the, the marriage bed is to be kept pure. And so if you're going to go ahead and start sleeping around with these guys here, I'm going home. And she took a lot of offense from that. How dare you judge me? How dare you speak to me like that? Don't you, I'm forgiving God. Like if, if Jesus doesn't judge me, who are you to judge me? And there's our word again. To, to the point where Hannah actually said this to Entertainment Weekly. This is, her, this is her view of Christian spirituality and theology. She said this, listen, I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. And there it is. And they're okay. Listen, I'm so forgiven. Like, I can do whatever because I am a sinner. I sin every day, so it's okay if I keep sinning and I do whatever I want. To which Jesus goes, I hate that. That's the Nicolaitans. 
no, no, no. It's not that you can earn anything from God or by you sort of thinking if you live it out well enough, God will accept you. Now, that's not grace. At the same time, forgiveness is intrinsically linked with repentance. Turning away from the things that alienated you from God to begin with. And you might go, well, Perth, that's really tough. But, but you just need to understand something. It's the life of a believer. Like, we live in a culture that is so people-pleasing that we confuse love with permission. And we think if I love you, it means I will never say anything that might offend you. Like, I, I love my generation. I love my generation. You know one of the great things that millennials have going for them? I mean, it's just amazing. And just watch as it impacts the world as the Lord sets their hearts on fire more and more. Is that they cannot stand oppression and they cannot stand when people are, are, are downtrodden or, or marginalized. That is, that is amazing. That is amazing. That said, sometimes I talk with millennials and they say things to me that are very, very, that sound very spiritual, but are in reality very, very stupid. Um, for instance, I can tell you, I'll sit down with somebody and I'll be like, hey man, I'll be like, hey, how's your, how's your relationship with Jesus? What's your life with God looking like right now? And they go, oh man, I'm just learning how to love people well. What does that entail? Living exactly like people who don't know God? I love people well, and I don't want them to feel judged, so I'll hang out with them on Friday night at, at, at this bar and get hammered with them. Because, you know, like Jesus went to parties, and so it's okay if I do that as well. And you missed the part where Jesus also transformed the people at the parties, but okay. Um, <laughs> but if that's where you're, listen, like, if you, can, if you confuse love with permission, and you think love means you never call somebody on something, you need to understand something. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Don't say that you love someone if you're complacent in their rebellion. Don't. If you are fine keeping your mouth shut, if somebody can, commits things that alienate them from God, that destroy their lives, that sent them on an eternal pathway towards eternal fire, punishment, and suffering, don't you dare say that you love them. Well, I don't want their feelings to be hurt. No, that's more about you than them. You don't want their feelings to be hurt because you want them to like you. That's not love. You know, how, how do I do this? How do, how do I walk with the Spirit? How, how, how do I live this out? Because basically, Bert, what you're telling me is, okay, listen, I need, to, I need to absolutely live differently. I need to absolutely cling to the Scriptures and cling to truth. But at the same time, while I'm doing that, I know that's going to cause people to not like me. And so you, what you're telling me is, is that while I do that, I have to then respond to people who are rude to me with kindness and love? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. How do I do that? Oh, I have the answer to that too. His name's Jesus. The only way that you can is by living in the power and grace and leading of the Holy Spirit. It is an absolutely, by human standards, an impossible calling. But you have a God who will give you more than enough strength. He will. I'm not, tell, I'm not, I'm not getting up on the stage and going, so just be better, darn it. No, no. Just throw yourself in dependency on the Holy Spirit. Seek the Lord for yourself and watch as you spend time with him, as he grows you and changes you and molds you. And if you don't know how to begin that, how about we pray together? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe where you are today is, look, this whole repentance thing is brand new to you. And you've been taught this version of Christianity where you've been given only grace and no truth. 
Or maybe where you are is the exact opposite. You've only been given truth and no grace. You've only been given a set of standards that you can't possibly live up to. God in his mercy wants to give you both, grace and truth. So if you would say, all right, you're not where you are or where you should be with God, I want you to pray with me. If you say, like, okay, I'm not walking with Jesus. I don't know him or I did and I walked away. Okay, I want you to pray with me right now and let's ask the Holy Spirit of God to fill us so that we can walk with him. And so here's what we're gonna pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Heavenly Father, I recognize my absolute need for you. I am sorry. I have rebelled against you. I have lived for me. I have sinned. And yet I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me, that you love me so much you gave me a Savior who will wipe away my sin and let me be filled with your Spirit so I can walk with you. So God, I'm asking you right now, would you help me come to you? I hand my life over to you. You do whatever you want. You Please just show me how to live for you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.